Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever bought something online that turned out to be much less than you expected? Perhaps you saw an item advertised on TV or social media or pictured in a glossy magazine. It looked fantastic from afar, but when you got it, you were disappointed in it. You ever splurged on an all-inclusive vacation? It was advertised as a sunny locale with first-class facilities, excellent meals, and some excursions that really appealed to you. But the reality was depressing. The rain season had just begun, the hotel was dirty, the meals were second-rate, and many of the planned outings were canceled. We can have that kind of feeling when we read the contrast between Balaam's prophecies and what actually happened in the Israelite camp. Balaam has spoken repeatedly about how blessed God's people are. The Lord has made them into an innumerable multitude. They experience neither misfortune nor misery, for the Lord their God is with them. No sorcery or divination could succeed against them, for the Lord had blessed them, and he would not change his mind. Out of this chosen nation, the Messiah would come to bring salvation for his people and judgment on his enemies. And yet in our text, we come down from the lofty heights of Balaam's prophecy to the harsh reality of God's defiled people living in the valley below. Far from being the upright people of God, the Israelites mix and mingle with the Moabites and Midianites. They get invited to their feasts and sit down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play, engaging in sexual immorality and in the worship of Baal of Peor. It was not just one or two Israelites who did this. Our text refers to the Israelites and the people. Thus, the Israelites forsook the Lord, their covenant God. The same also happens in the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible pictures the church as the glorious bride of Christ, the pure, spotless wife of the Lamb of God. The Bible speaks about the church being a place where people of faith are devoted to the Lord and to His service. The church is presented as a loving, caring community which welcomes all kinds of people. Yet the sins that are prominent in the world also occur with surprising regularity in the church. Church members often display selfishness and prejudice in their dealings with others. We're not always the united, loving, supportive community that we're supposed to be. It raises questions. Are we truly the blessed people of God or not? Which is the real Israel? The one pictured in Balaam's prophecies or the one described in our text? 
What is the church of Jesus Christ? Are we truly the chosen people of God, united in a common faith in Jesus Christ? Or are we a bunch of hypocrites who pretend to love God, while in fact we pursue our own interests and desires in life? In our text, we'll see how Satan attacks God's people and how sin infiltrates the congregation. We'll also see how the Lord responds and how he rescues his people. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Despite being the Lord's chosen and blessed people, the Israelites prostituted themselves with the Moabites and their gods. We'll see how the Moabites invited the Israelites to their parties, how the Lord judged the Israelites for their idolatry and fornication, and how the Lord rescued his people through the actions of Phinehas. Numbers 25 ended with Balak sending Balaam home in disgust and with Balaam leaving. Yet this is not the last mention of Balaam in Numbers. Numbers 31 makes it clear that the events that happened in our text occurred at the advice of Balaam. It speaks of how the Moabites caused the Israelites to act treacherously against the Lord so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. It appears that either before he departed or perhaps on a later return visit, Balaam gave Balak some advice about how to attack the people of God. Obviously, the idea of cursing them had not worked out. But perhaps it was possible to tempt them and to cause them to sin against the commandments of their own God, and so to lead them astray. Why would Balaam do this? In Numbers 23, verse 10, when Balaam spoke about God's blessings on Israel, he said, Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. He appears to be casting his lot with God's people and making some kind of confession of faith in Israel's God. But the Bible makes clear that Balaam was motivated by money. He still had his eyes set on those fees of divination Balak had promised him. 2 Peter 2 verse 15 speaks about how Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. It was Balaam's desire to be rich that led him to give Balak advice about how to lead God's people astray. Our text tells us what happened. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to war with the daughters of Moab. The Moabites and the Midianites invited the people of Israel to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate, and they bowed down to their gods. Our text describes the Israelites sinning against the Lord by idolatry, by bowing down to other gods, and by sexual immorality. But, beloved, that didn't just happen. Imagine that Balaam gave Balak this advice. Why don't you invite the Israelites over for a worship service to Baal? If you do, you'll get them to break the first and second commandments, and God will be angry with them and destroy them. Well, I don't think that would work any better than if a friend invited you to come to worship Allah at their mosque next Sunday. You would see through that. 
Imagine that Balaam gave Balak this advice. Why don't you get your attractive young men and women to seduce the Israelites? If you do, uh, they will break the seventh commandment, forbidding sexual immorality, and God will break out in anger against them. I don't think that would work any better than one of your co-workers inviting you to an orgy of sexual indulgence. You would see through that. At the end of our text, in verse 18, the Lord speaks about how the Midianites got Israel to prostitute themselves both physically and spiritually. He speaks about how they have harassed you with their wiles by which they beguiled you. The word harassed means to attack or to treat with hostility. The Midianites used their wiles and they beguiled the people. These words come from a common root, which means to act slickly or deceptively, to behave cunningly against. The same word is used in Genesis 37, 18 of Jacob's brothers conspiring against him to kill him. What our text makes clear is that the Moabites and Midianites devised a slick plan by which to deceive the Israelites. By means of their plan, their intent was to do God's people harm. So what was their plan? Well, it appears that they pretend to be neighborly by inviting these new people on the border of the land of Canaan to come and hang out with them. We've got a celebration happening. Why don't you come on by? We're having a party. You're all invited. And so some of the Israelites went. They began to hang out with their new neighbors. They started to get to know them. Nice people, they thought. They're very welcoming. The next time they got invited, it was for a meal. They were having a feast. In ancient days, when you had a feast, the meat was commonly offered to idols before it was eaten. The Israelites were looking forward to the feast, so they went along. You know, if your neighbor invited you to come for dinner and began the meal by praying to their God, you'd show some respect and bow your head, wouldn't you? And so the Israelites were drawn into the worship of the God of their neighbors, Baal Peor. They were present when the Moabites, Midianites, offered their sacrifices to Baal Peor, and they bowed their heads to their gods. But that's not all that happened. A feast doesn't just include good food. It also involves having a few drinks. This feast turned into a party. When Paul describes what happened in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. There was music, and they started dancing. Couples formed, and with all the drinking, inhibitions were lowered. People drifted away from the party to have sex together. 
We know from history that Baal was a fertility god, and that that at feasts in his honor, people would commonly pair off to have sex. Thus, the Moabites and Midianites enticed the Israelites to prostitute themselves. They did so physically by giving into sexual temptation and spiritually by bowing down and worshiping Baal Peor instead of the Lord. What the people of Israel didn't clearly understand is that already in paradise, the Lord had put enmity between Satan and the woman and between the offspring of each. Israel was God's covenant people set apart for his service. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were not to align themselves with people who did not love and did not serve God. In James 4, verse 4, James called the New Testament church of God, you adulterous people. James's point was not that they were guilty of sexual sin, but of forsaking the Lord. And how did they forsake the Lord? Through friendship with the world. The Bible does not require us to withdraw from the world or to live in virtual colonies. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul makes it clear that it is impossible to live in this world without associating with the people of this world. We also have a task of shining forth as lights in this world to witness of the hope that lives in us to unbelievers But, beloved, what happens in your contact with the people of this world? Who is influencing who? Are you drawing others to Christ? Or are they drawing you away from him? Do you regularly associate with unbelieving friends? Do you go drinking and partying with them? What happens when someone asks you to dance or to go for a swim in the pool or a soak in the hot tub? What kind of hanky-panky goes on at these parties? How many one-night stands have happened over the years simply because someone threw a party? Are we aware that we're setting ourselves up for trouble if we participate with the world in their lifestyle? The Lord tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. I wonder, beloved, if we're still taking that warning to heart. Do we see ourselves as a people set apart, dedicated to God? To what extent do we partake in the entertainment offered by this world? The world offers us entertainment at our fingertips, in our homes. There is this endless stream of shows and movies available. There's all kinds of stupid TikTok videos. Many get involved in gaming. And that whole industry is on the verge of allowing players to experience anything firsthand through virtual reality headsets. 
And beloved, most of what's available is not wholesome. There's swearing, drinking, drug use, gambling, violence, nudity, and sex. Many of these things are portrayed as a normal, acceptable way of living. We're drawn into a different world. A world in which violence is normalized, where fighters duel to a death match. A world in which excessive drinking and drug use is common. A world in which love is equated with sex. And where when it comes to sexuality, anything goes. Ideas and images are imprinted on our minds. Our emotions get involved. We get drawn into an ungodly way of thinking, into unwholesome fantasies. Our acceptance of worldly ways perverts our hearts and minds. Like the Israelites, it's not difficult for us to be defiled through friendship with the world. It's so easy for us to make things in this life more important than God. So easily we get drawn into idolatry, money, and the power it provides and the comfort it gives can be something that easily draws us away from God. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Many have shipwrecked their faith by prioritizing money above God. Love relationships with those who do not share the faith have also led many Christians away from the service of God. See, beloved, the temptations that faced Israel are similar to the temptations that face us today. Brings us to our second point, and we'll see how the Lord judged the Israelites for their idolatry and fornication. Our text speaks in verse 3 about how Israel yoked itself to the Baal of Peor. They didn't just go to a party and fall into sin by bowing down to foreign gods and by engaging in sexual immorality. This became a new way of life. It's communicated through that word, yoked. In ancient times, if you wanted to plow a field, you yoked animals together. You attached a plow for them to pull through the dirt. A yoke is a wooden frame that binds animals together so they can work in unity. The point is that the people forsook the covenant that they had with the Lord, and they aligned themselves with the gods of the Moabites and Midianites. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He commanded Moses to take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord might be turned away from Israel. The leaders of the various clans were responsible for the rebellion of those under their care. Because they failed to discipline those who sinned and strayed, God held them accountable. He commanded them to be hung. Moses did not do what the Lord commanded. 
Instead, he commanded that the judges put to death the men who had sinned. The leadership of the people appears to be paralyzed by the situation. Just like Moses failed to have the heads of the clans hung, so the judges also failed to punish those who had sinned and strayed. We see a repeat of what happened to the first generation who worshipped the golden calf while camped at Mount Sinai. The people turned their backs on God by worshipping idols, and the leaders didn't really know what to do to stop it. The result was that the Lord brought a plague on the Israelite camp. His anger was poured out on those people because they had prostituted themselves physically and spiritually by committing idolatry and fornication. Our text tells us that 24,000 people died because of the plague. Why would the Lord bring a plague on the people and kill so many of them? Is it because God lost his temper? Or because he's a vindictive God? No, beloved. The Lord loved his people deeply. This sin threatened Israel's existence as God's people. The Lord didn't bring a plague to stop their sinning and straying. They would soon be assimilated into the worship and the culture and the lifestyle of the surrounding nations. Our text continues by describing how an Israelite man brought a Midianite woman into the Israelite camp. He did this in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of Israel. This Israelite man took this Midianite woman into his tent to have sex with her. He thinks that what is wrong and sinful has become lawful and normal. Our text notes that this Israelite man was named Zimri, that he was a chief of a father's house from the tribe of the Simeonites. He sinned publicly right at the time when people were dying of the plague, when the congregation was weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. We see how when there is no discipline among the people of God, sin becomes more and more flagrant. While others had sinned privately, this man did it blatantly and unashamedly. It's normally what happens when sin is condoned. It's why the Lord Jesus commanded us to address our brothers and sisters in the faith when we observe them sinning. Jesus said that if your brother sins, you need to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You need to do that, to call your brother or sister to repentance, to save his or her soul from hell. Our text shows, beloved, why church discipline is one of the marks of a true church. A church that is unwilling to discipline sinning members condones their sinful way of life. Paul teaches us about how quickly sin spreads in 1 Corinthians 5. The context is that a man was having sex with his stepmom and that the church did nothing to discipline him. Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Just as a tablespoon of yeast spread through a whole bat, 
spreads through a whole batch of dough, causing bread to rise. So sin, which is condoned in the church, soon spreads to others. It's just a generation ago that our former Dutch sister churches knew that young people in their midst had shacked up together, but that didn't, they didn't discipline them. Recently, some of their churches have given a blessing to same-sex marriages. As we see, another reason for warning and admonishing those who sin is to prevent their sin from spreading to others in the church. Our reading from 2 Corinthians 6 addresses the issue at stake in our text. Paul commands us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We may not allow ourselves to be aligned with the world in how they think and in how they act. Paul explains the problem of compromising with the world. He does so by asking five questions. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What communion has light with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? What do a believer and an unbeliever have in common? What union is there between the worship of God and the worship of idols? The point of Paul's questions is to drive home the utter impossibility of a Christian putting his neck into the same yoke with that with an unbeliever. Paul makes it clear there's just really two kinds of people in this world. There are believers in Jesus Christ and there are unbelievers, people who do not accept him as Lord and Savior. They stand over against one another in complete contradiction. There can be no compromise between them. Anytime we bind ourselves with unbelievers, we compromise our faith. We put ourselves in a situation where we can and often will be led astray from the faith. It brings us to our final point. You know, we'll see how the Lord rescued his people through the actions of Phinehas. The plague that the Lord brought on the Israelite camp kept spreading, and more and more people were dying. Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, saw the blatant sin of one of the chiefs of the tribe of Simeon. He entered the tent where this man was having sex with a Midianite woman, and he killed the copulating couple with a single spear thrust. Our text says that thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Why was the plague stopped at this point? Well, because Phinehas acted out of faithfulness to the Lord. Although he was a young man at the time, he's not frozen with indecision like Moses and the other leaders in Israel. The Lord had commanded Moses to kill the chiefs of the people. Zimri was the son of one of these chiefs a leader among the Simeonites. And so, so Phinehas was acting in accordance with the command of the Lord. 
Further, we need to understand that Phinehas was not just an individual in Israel. He was a Levite from the family of the priests. Guarding the purity of the tabernacle was his responsibility. Protecting the holiness of the camp was part of his job description. Phinehas acted decisively out of respect for the holiness of the Lord his God. God praises him for this. He says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Through Phinehas' action, the Lord rescued his people. He did not allow the influence of the Moabites and Midianites to continue to spread unchecked. He did not allow Satan to lead his people further into idolatry and into sexual immorality. The Lord was faithful to his covenant promises, rescuing his people so that they could continue to live in a love relationship with him. Remember, beloved, the Lord had promised to bless his people, to make them into a great nation, to give them the promised land as their inheritance, to cause the Messiah to come forth from them. It is because God's blessing rested on his people that he rescued them through the actions of Phinehas. Our text details both the blessings and curses that result from the Midianite plot against Israel and Phinehas's actions. The Lord makes a covenant of peace with Phinehas. He promises that he and his descendants would always serve as priests before God because Phinehas was jealous for the Lord and because he made atonement for the people. What a blessing this would be for his family in the generations to come. The priests ministered in the temple. They taught God's word to his people. Even though Israel would often stray, the Levites' close contact with the Lord and his word often helped them to keep this tribe devoted to God's service. Meanwhile, God's curse rested on the Midianites While formerly the Lord had not permitted his people to attack the Midianites, now he commands Israel to harass them and to strike them down. Numbers 31 details how the Israelites killed all their men and women, their five kings, and also Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. God brought his righteous judgment on them because they sought to seduce his people and lead them astray. Reminds us of what Paul says in Romans 1, about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and how he will bring his judgment on them. We began the sermon by speaking about the contrast between Balaam's descriptions of Israel and how they were blessed and the reality of how they sinned and strayed from God's ways. We noted the difference between the Bible's picture of the church as the pure bride of Christ 
and the reality of how the church is often sin-stained and plagued with prejudice and selfishness and disunity. We ask, which is the true Israel? What really is the church of Christ? Beloved, you're never going to find a perfect church. You know why not? It's because the church is made up of sinful people. Sinful people are often prejudiced and selfish and unloving. And we're all tempted. And we're all prone to sin and to stray. But that's not our identity as church of Jesus Christ. The true church consists of those who have been forgiven all their sins through the blood of the Lamb. The true church consists of those who are cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ. We are saints. God sanctified his holy people, washed and renewed by the Spirit of our Savior, We are the blessed people of God, the bride of Jesus Christ. Not because of what we do, but because of what God has done for us. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.